This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Surrogate Warfare, The Transformation of War in the 21st Century by Andreas Krieg and Jean-Marc Riccoli in 2019. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Chapter 2, The Context of Neo-Trinitarian War A lot has been written over the past two decades about the dawn of a new age in warfare. Ever since the end of the Cold War, scholars, analysts, and military professionals have predicted a radical change in the nature of warfare, in terms of who uses violence, against whom, for what ends, and using what ways and means. A hundred years after the Great War, which was supposed to end all wars, the transformation of the delivery of coercive force could not have been more fundamental. In 1914, jubilant young men enthusiastically jumped on the trains and into taxis that would bring them to the front, where a hero's death was awaiting them in the inevitable clash of national wills that would quickly and dramatically settle old scores and determine new destinies. In 2014, the president of the allegedly only remaining superpower hesitantly authorized manned and unmanned air power to deliver precision strike capability in support of local forces fighting a global insurgency organization that had embarked on a jihadist crusade halfway around the world in the Middle East. The remarkable paradigm shift has not so much been the technological advancements in warfare, allowing for the instantaneous delivery of deadly force over an extensive battle space, as much more the socio-political foundation on the basis of which war is being waged in the 21st century. According to the classic Western military theories of Machiavelli, Antoine Henri Jomini, Clausewitz, and Moltke, war is the social Darwinist extension of the inherent evolutionary drive of mankind to further its own interests, more often than not at the expense of others. From the 19th century viewpoint, mankind's socialization brought with it the inevitable clash of wills, needs, and interests that on the macro level would lead to the escalation of organized mass violence between communities, nations, even civilizations. At the heart of the character of war were the passions of the people, even when war was led and orchestrated by politics and military. The 19th century Swiss military theorist Jomini regarded the societal component of warfare as its, as its defining character. Quote, the passions which agitate the masses that are brought into collision, the warlike qualities of these masses, the energy and talent of their commanders, the spirit, more or less martial, of nations and epochs, in a word, everything that can be called the poetry and metaphysics of war, will have a permanent influence on its result. End quote. The metaphysics of war in classical military 19th century thought revolve fundamentally around the passions and wills of people to surrender blood and treasure in a patriotic strife, not just for societal security, but also social aggrandizement. The aims of war were defined by emotional subjectivity rather than by sober objective ratio, the latter being the component that, for Clausewitz, was provided by the state that directed the passions of the people. So, the essential motion in the classical notion of war is patriotism, the individual's vigorous love for the nation, or more concretely, the individual's love for the community as an extension of family. While these patriotic tendencies can be observed already in Machiavelli's infamous contrasting juxtaposition of the citizen-soldier as society's agent and the mercenary as a commercial opportunist, they were really coming to the fore as part of the post-revolutionary zeitgeist after 1789. Turning its back on the military, or sorry, professional military of the ancient regime, 
the idea of the Levian mass that had allowed Napoleon to keep the combined armies of Europe in check for years instigated a change of military thought in the 19th century. While neither the British nor the Prussians nor the Austrians had much time for the socio-political legacies of the French Revolution, they nonetheless supported the idea of an absolute or total war. Whether Clausewitz in his 1832 On War, Komar Freer von der Goltz in his 1883 Das Volk in Waffen, Nation in Arms, or Erich Ludendorff's 1935 Der Totalkrieg, The Total War, Modern military thought in the 19th and early 20th centuries promoted war as a mass activity, whereby civilian and military infrastructure were employed to achieve the nation's strategic objectives. Driven by the intellectual zeitgeist in Central Europe of the 19th century, shaped by romanticism and nationalism, warfare was conventionalized as the glorified pursuit of heroic sacrifice for state and nation. Alfred Tennyson's 1854 poem about the charge of the Light Brigade during the Crimean War reflects this idea. Where can their glory fade? Oh, the wild charge they made. All the world wondered. Honor the charge they made. Honor the Light Brigade. Noble 600. Hmm. The underlying assertion is that despite the horrors of war, the sacrifices of the individual and society at large have to make our noble ones as they serve the nation and its interests. Hero worship, namely the elevation of the hero to deity through sacrifice, is not a phenomenon of the 19th century. Homer's Iliad, more than 2,000 years earlier, had already provided the foundation for the warrior hero. The epos, starring the likes of Achilles and Hector, glorifies the clash of heroes who, for their values and interests, would embark on an epic military campaign. Sacrifice was not so much a socio-political phenomenon, as war would elevate only the heroic leader, not the masses, who would bear the main burden of war in 19th century warfare. Unlike Kriegspozy, or war poetry, in the 1800s, the Iliad did not glorify warfare as something desirable, maybe inevitable, but not morally necessary for a community's development, and therefore something to embrace. Hero worship in an era of romanticism and nationalism, more than in any other time in history, embraced the masses whose ranks were filled with anonymous warriors as the defenders of state and nation. Hero worship developed into a cult in an almost post-religious fashion that could invent national lieux de mémoire, or realms of memory, which were not necessarily physical. As Thomas Carlyle observes in his 1841 book, hero worship is the deepest root of all, the taproot from which in a great degree all the rest were nourished and grown. The deification of the warrior hero as the martyr of the nation is a phenomenon that is intellectually tied to concepts of nation and state, and is thereby distinct to the post-French Revolutionary era, in which the symbiosis of state and nation provided a frame to conceptualize sociopolitics. It manifested an image of warfare that the classical military thinkers of the time adopted in their conceptualization of organized violence as a national levy en masse to compete with other nations on the chessboard of international politics. Yet, warfare was not meant to be a sober exercise of power politics. On the contrary, warfare meant channeling the emotions and passions of the people toward victory on the battlefield, while pre-1789 warfare in Europe was defined by a clash of a clash between the wills of kings and nobility armed with professional armies. The French Revolution added a third component to war, the people. As Clausewitz asserts in On War, war is an extension of the social milieu, that is, not just the pursuit of, of politics by other means, but also a socio-political phenomenon that is shaped by the relationship between society and political authority. 
As such, very, quote, very few of the new manifestations in war can be ascribed to new inventions or new departures in ideas. They result mainly from the transformation of society and new social conditions. Thus, it is the socio-political component of warfare, the interaction between the community and the state, that determines the nature of war. Even in reference to a non-democratic system, such as the one Clausewitz lived in, societal sentiment over what it deems worth fighting and dying for can influence how the state conducts policies. It follows that the transformation of the art of war resulted from the transformation of politics. So far from suggesting that the two could be disassociated from each other, these changes are a strong proof of their indissoluble connection, end quote. For Clausewitz, the transition from the limited wars of the pre-1789 era to the total war of the Levion Mass era was driven by the fundamental reconceptualization of socio-political affairs and values during the French Revolution. Thus, for Clausewitz, any future changes in the nature of warfare had to be changes that were preceded by transformations in how societies constitute and position themselves vis-a-vis the state. What remained a constant in Clausewitz's conceptualization of warfare were three tendencies whose interrelationship might change but whose role in warfare was undisputed. The trinity of society, state, and soldier. Trinitarian warfare, the classic. Beginning with the assumption that warfare is inherently a socio-political phenomenon, Clausewitz, more than any other military thinker, has conceptualized warfare on the basis of social and political relationships between three interlinked actors who represent war's most fundamental tendencies. In this book, we take Clausewitz's Trinitarian concept of war as the baseline from which surrogate warfare departs. The reason is that in the early 21st century, at least Western thinking about the nature and character of war appears to be linked to the tripartite concept of war. As Clausewitz explains in On War, quote, as a total phenomenon, its, wars, dominant tendencies always make war a paradoxical trinity composed of primordial violence, hatred and enmity, which are to be regarded as a blind natural force, of the play of chance and probability within which the creative spirit is free to roam and of its element of subordination as an instrument of policy, which makes it subject to reason alone. The first of these three aspects mainly concerns the people. The second, the commander and his army. In the third, the government. End quote. What emerges from Clausewitz's analysis is the wonderful trinity of society, state, and soldier, whose raison d'etre is tied to the delivery of security as the most essential of human needs. In a somewhat familiar way, Clausewitz's conceptualization of warfare revolves around human wills, needs, and interests in the protection thereof. Thus, warfare as the management of violence is a conventional means of human discourse no one can elude and everybody needs to prepare for. At its core, this human activity is an extension of human behavior within a state of chaos and anarchy. Within the context of the 19th century, then, the management of violence is no longer a solitary activity of each man for himself, but has been extended to a socio-political activity for the protection of aggregate human wills, needs, and interests. And this is where the Trinitarian concept of warfare ties in with the normative ideas of the social contract, particularly as conceptualized by Tom by Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. While for many the theory of the social contract remains a normative theory about the formation of liberal socio-political affairs, 
in essence, the social contract as envisaged by Hobbes and Locke in the 17th and 18th centuries, it revolves around the provision of communal security and thereby relates to the Trinitarian character of war, according to Clausewitz. Accepting the social Darwinistic, misanthropic premise that in a lawless state of nature where homo homini lupus, that is, man is man's wolf, both Hobbes and Locke envisage the state as a communal authority to regulate social life, thereby protecting the individual not only from internal but also external threats. As Hobbes states in his Leviathan, a community of individuals need to, quote, erect such a common power as may be able to defend them from the foreign, the invasion of foreigners, and the injuries of one other, and thereby to secure them in such sort as that by their own industry, and by the fruities of the earth, fruits, they may nourish themselves and live contentedly, end quote. Particularly in Locke's concept of the social contract between a community and the enforcement authority of the state, the covenant binds a discretionary and fiduciary association of individuals who together share a common definition of threat against a communally defined object of reference. Thus, based on Locke's discretionary view, society and the state have the sole purpose of upholding public security for those individuals within this community, namely its citizens. Public security or communal security, then, is the aggregate physical security of citizens, their properties, and their interests and values. The provision and maintenance of this communal security lies within the state, which is appointed by society as its enforcement authority. The bipolarity of society and state on their own, however, is incomplete and impotent. The social contractarian duty of the state necessitates the delegation of the executive security functions to an agent inherent within the socio-political fabric of society and state, a statutory security sector. While historically this role was assigned to the most experienced and effective professionals, of which many were not raised internally but paid for mercenaries, in Clausewitz's post-revolutionary mindset, this role could be fulfilled only by the, by the citizen soldier. The security sector, most notably the military, had to complete the trinity as the enforcement authority's executive agent. Quote, if someone has a right to something, someone else has an obligation to provide for it. If a person has a right to life, the obligation falls onto someone to safeguard that life. If someone has a right to liberty, then it falls onto someone to safeguard that liberty. This is why states have an obligation to raise and maintain armies. Armies then perform a moral necessary, morally necessary function, safeguarding the rights to which the members of that society are entitled vis-a-vis -vis external threats to their security individually and collectively." End quote. Hence, the classic model of war that has been shaped by the military thinkers of the 19th century is one that anachronistically revolves around the Trinitarian delivery or maintenance of communal security. Communal security providers raised from the midst of society provide security in the protection of national interests that are defined by the state in exchange with the community it presides over. For the 19th century social Darwinists, the trinity of society, state, and soldier is inextricably linked to warfare and the necessity of individuals and communities to secure their position in an inherently belligerent, malignant international community, a thought that prevailed long until the 20th century. Martin Van Creveld's concept of the Trinitarian War as the clash of societies on the battlefield is an existential struggle for, for survival throwing in the societal resources and assets arguably constitutes the baseline in Western thinking on war against which both the nature and character of war is evaluated. 
Lassa F. Oppenheim's classic 1926 treatise is a case in point, quote, war is a contention between two or more states through their armed forces for the purpose of overpowering each other and imposing such conditions of peace as the victor pleases, end quote. Contention through the use of armed force implies the application of violence, that is, the coercive generation of destructive and disruptive force as an essential feature of war, always managed and applied by the Trinitarian agents of state and soldier. Society as the principle is the one to be secured, but at the same time the one targeted by the enemy. While individuals suffer, only those in uniform, organized within the military apparatus sanctioned by the state, are the ones authorized to employ violence. The military as the executive public security provider has, quote, to serve the state. The essence and moral core of their service is to defend that state through the management and application of violence in defense of the territorial integrity, political sovereignty, and vital national interests of that state. Their contract has an unlimited liability clause. They accept, and in all-volunteer force, unquestionably voluntarily accept, the obligation to put their lives at grave risk when ordered to do so. Their contract also requires them to kill other human beings and destroy their property when given legal orders to do so, end quote. The management of violence, sanctioned by the state and executed by the military in modern times, according to Max Faber, becomes the prerogative of the state. The notion of the state's monopoly on violence, SMOV, originates in Weber's 1919 pamphlet Politics as a Vocation, in which he defines the state as a community that, within a certain territory, assumes the monopoly on legitimate violence. Weber clearly explains that the use of force by private individuals is not ruled out, per se, but requires the approval of state authority. Weber's concept is effectively aligned with Clausewitz's concept of the Trinity. Moving away from the prehistoric state of nature, the Trinity ought to uh, authorize, regulate, and direct violence so as to manage the anarchy emerging from isolated individuals arbitrarily and violently pursuing self-interested objectives at the expense of public security. In this context, Trinitarian war is not arbitrary at all, as it involves organized violence executed with the authority of the state by a public security provider raised from within the community. The predominant characteristic of classical war between trinities is a product of the distinct historical and sociocultural context of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. In an international system defined increasingly by sovereign states monopolizing international affairs, violence lost its arbitrary, chaotic nature to become an organized operation following rules which could be studied and theorized. The classical definition of war postulates a Westphalian understanding of state sovereignty and the French revolutionary idea of popular sovereignty. Both determine how, in the classical era, trinities organized violence in terms of who fights wars against whom, for what reason, and how. Classical warfare takes place in an international state of nature, wherein the trinity becomes a discretionary association for the advancement of communal security interests. The realist and non-realist assumptions of the zero-sum nature of international affairs and the implicit Darwinist character of humanity lead to a definition of war as the inevitable struggle for communal survival. Even in the mind of Clausewitz, in which the state is the societal authority receiving legitimacy from divine rationality, thereby emancipated from the emotions and passions of the people, policy had to be the product of communal survival interests. 
In the realist Machiavellian world of unconstrained international affairs, these communal interests clash, creating widespread sentiments of public insecurity, the foundation of conventional securitization. National interests, especially those deemed existential, are socially constructed. Thus, regardless of the rationality of the state, policy and ultimately firm warfare as the extension of policy remain, also for Clausewitz, tied to the emotions and passions of the people. The state has the duty to provide for the people security of the community it presides over. The military has the duty to invest blood and skills to execute policy. Both state and military do so as agents of a distinct community within a world of distinct territoriality, communal affiliation, and unchallenged state sovereignty. Despite the anachronistic nature of this conceptualization, the classical Trinitarian notion of warfare as emerging from the socio-political reality of the late 18th, 19th, and early 20th centuries continues to be the point of reference for military thinkers, strategists, and theorists in the postmodern era. Neo-Trinitarian Warfare, the Irregular Warfare in the 21st century has been described as irregular, unconventional, or asymmetrical, always against the backdrop of the classic model of war, defined and conceptualized by the military thinkers of the 19th and 20th centuries. Needless to say, the transition from the classic to the postmodern era of war has been fluent. T.E. Lawrence's use of Arab irregulars against the regulars of the Ottoman Empire during World War I was as much irregular and unconventional, in the classical sense of the word, as the Wehrmacht's operations against the partisans on the Balkans during World War II and the U.S. anti-guerrilla warfare in Vietnam during the 1960s and 70s. Thus, it is hard to really determine when the classical era of warfare ended and when postmodernity began. When did irregular or unconventional wars become more common than regular, conventional military operations? Mostly, these assertions have been made in the literature on the basis of the changing character of warfare, that is, the changing means and ways to achieve military objectives on the operational level. However, it seems to be more accurate to analyze this transition from classical to postmodern warfare within the socio-political and geostrategic upheavals at the end of the 20th century. It is the reconstitution of the Clausewitzian trinity and the fundamental change of the relationships between individuals, authority structures, and security providers that have defined this turn of an era. Globalized War In the era of Jomini, Gerhard von Scharnhorst, Clausewitz, and Moltke, wars were won in the one decisive battle in which the limited battle space was overseen by the general who remained in direct visual contact with his soldiers. Armies traveled for weeks or months to reach the battlefield, often only a few hundred miles away. Declarations of war would take days to be sent from one capital to the other. Territorial boundaries were supervised by toll keepers and enforced by garrison towns. The sovereignty of states, regardless of their size, was sacrosanct, and the only way sovereignty was challenged was by the means of war by one state against another. In the past 200 years, the world we live in has changed more fundamentally and more rapidly than arguably ever in human history. While the leap forward from the immediate post-French revolutionary years to the Franco-Prussian War in the 1870 had already profoundly changed the lives of the European people, the changes that came with the Industrial Revolution were far from being as dramatic as those from the Digital and Information Revolutions a century later. 
With it came the fundamental transformation of socio-political, socio-economic, socio-cultural, and socio-psychological affairs. As the relationships between the community and the individual, and the community and the communal authorities have changed, as well as those between communities, so has the nature of conflict and conflict resolution. It was only in the second half of the 20th century that major upheavals took shape, which has commonly been summarized under the buzzword of globalization. James N. Rosenau characterizes this intangible complex phenomenon on the basis of a set of dynamics and revolutions. Quote, Among the most powerful of these dynamics are the microelectronic revolution that has facilitated the rapid flow of ideas, information, pictures, and money across continents. The transportation revolution that has hastened the boundary-spanning flow of elites, tourists, immigrants, legal and illegal, migrants, and whole populations. The organizational revolution that has shifted the flow of authority, influence, and power beyond traditional boundaries, and the economic revolution that has redirected the flow of goods, services, capital, and ownership among countries. Taken together, these flows have resulted in the globalization of local, provincial, national, and international affairs, a cumulative process that is both the source and consequence of eroding boundaries, integrating regions, proliferating networks, diminishing territorial attachments, coalescing social movements, weakening states, contracting sovereignty, and dispersing authority, end quote. The world at the beginning of the 21st century shaped by these revolutions has little resemblance with the relative order and predictability of the Clausewitzian era. Socio-political and intercultural affairs and exchange have merged into transnational flows that individual states or state authorities find it difficult to contain. The resulting state of uncertainty has often been referred to as anarchical in the absence of state regulation. Headley Bull pointed out in 1977 to a neo-medievalization of the world, a quasi-return to the pre-Westphalian era. From the point of view of the 2000s, with its 9-11 attacks and the spread of global jihadism, massive transnational migrant streams, financial crisis of 2008, and widespread collapse of state authority across Africa and the Middle East, the idealist classical conceptualizations of conflict in the 19th and 20th centuries appear as historical anomalies. The institutions, organizations, authorities, and values that have emerged since that then have been somewhat undermined. Units of analysis, such as national and international, compete with categories of transnationality to describe the sphere that affects individuals both within and outside the boundaries of the state and the nation, and are two concepts that have equally lost their monopoly amid the disintegrating order of the 21st century. The global system has been paradoxically reshuffled. While the state de jure retains the full authority to regulate and manage global affairs, its authority is in practice challenged by non-state actors operating in the global transnational system. The latter is characterized by numerous contests of influence among state and non-state actors, implying that no single state can wield power across all dimensions any longer. What emerges appears to be an almost apolar system, just like that of medieval times, where no one actor can dominate this increasingly anarchic environment. Anarchy in this context exceeds the conceptual boundaries of the realist or neo-realist idea of international anarchy. The new transnational anarchy is far more complex and unpredictable than that of the Cold War era, wherein the invisible hand of nuclear deterrence had put a lid on the competition between widely rational actors. 
The anarchical apolarity in the 21st century is far less than just a leaderless, state-centric construct. It is a competitive system of transnational nature that is no longer shaped exclusively by territorial integrity and state sovereignty, but by a dynamic interaction between state and non-state authority across and beyond the boundaries of states. As a consequence, the premise on which sociopolitics and ultimately war have been conceptualized has changed to state centrism. The idea that individuals and communities can estate or escape the state of nature only through a social contractarian covenant binding them to an enforcement authority modeled on the post-Westphalian nation-state has become archaic in a world of porous borders and growing migrant populations. In a shrinking world where dimensions of culture, sociopolitics, economics, and security have become globalized, social interactions and exchange have become more frequent and rapid beyond the scope of the conventional social contract. In fact, as global trade and business relations have intensified and communication technology has made global interactions instant, globalization has become a process of shaping a global transnational sphere of political, social, economic, and security affairs. This process has accelerated further with the advent of the Internet 2.0 and the rise of social media, which have become key shapers of identities and communities. The concept of the Trinity as revolving around state-regulated security and violence has thereby been challenged by the development of a global sphere inhabited by transnational societies, communities that do not exclusively see themselves as part of one national society, supervised by one national authority. Instead, these communities are part of fluid, sometimes temporary, transnational network societies, which are not tied to variables of state or nation. Consequently, social, political, economic, and security affairs have transcended the public sphere of individual states. These increasingly transnational activities have eroded the degree to which the individual state can monitor and control the activities of its citizens, as well as non-citizens, within the state's area of responsibility. Concepts of state sovereignty and territoriality have become more fluid. What does this mean for the Clausewitzian trinity? Contrary to Van Crevel's assertion in his book Transformation of War, Clausewitz's concept of the trinity has not lost its validity. Observing the increasing involvement of non-state actors as the main protagonists in war, Van Crevel predicted at the beginning of the 1990s that, toward the end of the second millennium, the state was no longer in a position to determine the outcomes of conflicts. While state authority was increasingly undermined by non-state actors, and states refrained more and more from major combat operations, the level of transnational violence was on the rise. In addition to the decline of the state as the main protagonist in war, Van Creveld argued that the clear division of labor within Clausewitz's Trinitarian War, that is, between the government that wages and directs war, the citizen-soldier who fights and dies, and the people who pay and suffer, this was no longer apparent. Thus, according to Van Creveld, violence in the 21st century would become a non-Trinitarian undertaking, as concepts of state, society, and soldier can only be ill-defined. As Mary Caldor states, quote, Paramilitary units, local warlords, criminal gangs, police forces, mercenary groups, and also regular armies including breakaway units operate through a mixture of confrontation and cooperation even on opposing sides. End quote. These new wars, then, are no longer a form of organized mass violence but degenerate into unregulated, arbitrary, primordial expressions of anarchy revolving around destruction and disruption by various means.
Nonetheless, Van Krebel's use of the term non-Trinitarian may have been hasty. Despite the fact that the classic Trinitarian concept of war may have been unknown to most societies during history, in its rudimentary form, the three elements of people, authority, and security provider have been apparent in most civilizations. What has changed through socio-political and technological revolutions has been merely the shape and form of these units and their relationship to each other. Even when a form of communal government exists only in its embryonic form, it is still fulfilling its role of a governance and enforcement authority. And the division between civilian and warrior is as old as civilization as a whole. Therefore, even non-state organizations such as ISIS, Hezbollah, and the PLO display Trinitarian tendencies, certainly not in reference to conventional, state-centric sociopolitics, but nevertheless in reference to the disintegrating sociopolitical landscape of the early 21st century. Insurgency as a form of warfare is therefore often just the attempt of communities to formalize Trinitarian and social contractarian institutions. These neo-Trinitarian institutions are the product of a process of a denationalization and re-articulation of security functions from the state to alternative security assemblages. Rita Abramson and Michael C. Williams characterize security assemblages as multi-stakeholder arrangements whereby, either in cooperation or competition, the state security functions are being externalized to non-state entities such as rebel groups, mercenaries, or commercial companies. In some instances, the new arrangements allow the state to more effectively provide communities with security in the face of asymmetrical transnational threats emanating from non-state actors. While in some instances, the state actively pursues partnership with non-Trinitarian institutions, in other cases, these institutions develop in opposition to the existing state institutions that see neo-Trinitarian actors as rivals. Hence, globalization has fundamentally altered social cohabitation, association, and interaction between humans, thereby rapidly undermining the social contractarian nature of socio-political affairs that had defined the post-Westphalian world since 1648. The inability of the state to deliver public goods effectively and inclusively, most notably security, had created a socio-political polarization, not just in the developing but also in the developed world. Public goods today are as much public goods as they are global goods, namely goods that generate benefits beyond the public scope of the nation-state. Thus, security in the 21st century concerned with the delivery of security as a global or transnational public good might no longer just be provided by the state for its citizens alone, but also by alternative socio-political enforcement authorities that, imitating the Trinitarian model of state, soldier, and society, nonetheless have responsibilities and accountabilities to communities. Instead of defining war as non-Trinitarian, War, in the 21st century, is much more neo-Trinitarian. Privatized War Neo-Trinitarian war has thereby been impacted by a privatization of security, namely the delivery and maintenance of security by non-state actors, of whom many are either exclusively private or transnational in their orientation. The privatization of security is both bottom-up and top-down, whereby the latter occurred against the backdrop of the former. Since the 1990s, scholars have predominantly looked at the privatization of security through the lens of commercialization, in so doing, reducing the debate to the top-down privatization of security.
Yet, this top-down privatization of security has to be understood within the context of the globalized world, where the Weberian notion of the state monopoly on violence has been challenged by non-state actors who have taken over functions that the state had internalized since the early 19th century. The formation of transnational societies inhibiting an increasingly transnational political space affected by problems that call for transnational solutions created the need for former state-centric decision-making processes to develop into processes governed by suprastate or non-state entities that increasingly rely on private input. Owing to the fact that conflicts in the era of globalization have in the same way become more transnational in nature, conflict management, both through peaceful means and war, has become more transnational, evolving into a multi-stakeholder endeavor coordinating efforts of private, public, and global institutions. From a bottom-up point of view, the privatization of war describes the erosion of the SMOV concept as predominantly, in the developing world, the state is unable to exercise the monopoly over violence as it competes with warlords, profiteers, organized crime, terrorists, rebels, and paramilitary groups. Thus, some states choose to cooperate with these new actors so as to remain even in a somewhat position of control. The commercialization of security, namely the top-down privatization of security, is a development that unraveled within this transnational milieu. Amid the neoliberal wave of privatizing national goods under Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s, the U.S. and the United Kingdom started to loosen the state's monopoly on the delivery of public goods. Even the morally sacrosanct monopoly on the management of violence was not exempt. In an effort to enhance effectiveness and efficiency, commercial enterprises were allowed to create a market for violence, a market that so far had been limited only to the production and procurement of military goods. The state actively outsourced security-related services to contractors who would provide services that the state considered to be non-core military functions, that is, functions that were far away from the actual delivery of armed force on the battlefield. However, over the past three decades, this private military and security industry has grown into a heterogeneous construct, providing services that range from logistical support services to armed services in highly complex operating environments. With hundreds of millions of dollars worth of services being consumed by commercial and governmental clients across the world, this once-infant market today is a global, financially well-endowed, under-regulated, and diversified market for violence. Unlike the ad hoc nature of mercenary bands operating in Africa in the 1960s and 70s, PMSCs are hierarchically organized enterprises that are registered locally and openly trade with their services, thereby driven by business profit rather than individual profit. Thus, in parallel to the bottom-up privatization of security, the, the managerial, business-oriented approach by state bureaucracies to the delivery of public goods has made its own contribution to undermining Weber's idea of the SMOV. Security has become a tradable commodity that is being sold to the highest bidder. While in many places the state is meanwhile unable to live up to its social contractarian duty to provide communal security inclusively, in other places, the state's limited ability to maintain security comprehensively has to be augmented by commercial providers of security, 
The perception of security and insecurity has changed in the era of globalization as the borders between war, rebellion, insurgency, and just organized crime have become blurry. Consequently, the means that are required to satisfy public sentiments of security within a perceived environment of mounting anarchy cannot be provided by the state alone anymore, also because of the transnational intangible nature of threat in the 21st century. As vehicles for the delivery of security are either replaced or supplemented by non-Trinitarian actors, the state's role in neo-Trinitarian war has often been that of a dispatcher, that is, an authority delegating security functions to executive agents, which are not always inherent to the socio-political milieu of the state. That is to say, the bonds between those providing security and those consuming it, though managed by the state, have been diffused a circumstance that can be attributed to the new threat environment in the post-Cold War era and new approaches to securitization that come with it. Securitized War In the postmodern war, those who benefit most from military and security services are not necessarily those who are paying from it. From a Western point of view in particular, the concept of humanitarian intervention has created a situation in which Western states wage war for peripheral interests, protecting communities overseas who consume security as a global rather than as a public good. It is hard to argue that the U.S.-led intervention in Afghanistan beginning in 2001 was entirely altruistic. But it is equally hard to argue that the post-bellum costs of reconstruction and state and nation building were entirely serving U.S. or Western national interests. The war in Afghanistan, the longest in American history, is arguably as much about global goods as it is about public goods, satisfying the U.S. public's call for justice and retribution after 9-11, while, as some might argue, creating positive externalities for local communities in terms of state and nation building. As a consequence, public opinion at home started asking Western policymakers why billions of dollars and thousands of soldiers' lives were sacrificed in what degenerated seemingly into a stabilization operation, while local communities were increasingly hostile toward foreign military personnel. The Afghanistan campaign thereby quintessentially displays the issues with the new wars of the 21st century. What was previously hailed by President George H.W. Bush as the beginning of an era for maintaining a new world order of permanent peace and global justice was brushed aside as simply resulting from the utopian euphoria that emerged from the immediate post-Cold War years. The obsolescence of major war that John Mueller predicted in 1989 did not mean the end of history or the end of all wars. Quite the contrary, it meant the obsolescence of Trinitarian War, as we have gotten used to it in the 19th and 20th centuries. A hundred years after the war that was supposed to end all wars, the threat environment has not become any more manageable or predictable, but instead more intangible and uncertain. Clemens von Metternich's Concert of Europe clashed over ultranationalist interests in great power dreams in 1914. The League of Nations disintegrated in the 1930s as it was unable to contain fascist and communist expansion plans. And the Cold War system evaporated as Mikhail Gorbachev implemented Glasnost and Perestroika in the 1980s. 
the idea of Pax Americana after 1990 turned out to be an illusion, an elusive cloak covering up simmering and formerly suppressed sectarian, ethnic, and religious conflicts. Neither the UN nor NATO were believed in the early 1990s to have to re-strategize their raison d'etre or grand strategic outlook. With the communist peril gone, the UN system, with NATO as the prevailing vehicle to maintain and implement international humanitarian law, seemed to outlive the bipolar Cold War system. Yet, the system had already fundamentally changed. It had changed more than it was apparent when the U.S. intervened to save Kurdish lives in northern Iraq in 1991 and Somali lives in Mogadishu in 1992. While throughout the 20th century, wars were fought as zero-sum games for public goods or national interests that were often defined vis-a-vis -vis a tangible and proclaimed referent object, the old system found it hard to do the same in the 21st century. The nemesis, the evil empire or the arch enemy that had always been there was no longer to be found, or at least was not as visible or tangible as before. The fundamental question of the neo-Trinitarian wars has been against whom and why are we using violence? The socio-political conceptualization of threat or securitization underlying the legitimization of war in the 21st century has most severely affected Western states that seem to be even more entangled in wars that, for their people, are no longer recognizable as such. The widespread confusion about what constitutes war in the 21st century is in that way not just a semantic issue, but also one that emerges from the hybrid nexus of law enforcement and military operations, as well as the overlap between public and global security. The maintenance of communal security today, as mentioned above, can no longer be separated from the provision of global security. Those benefiting from security provision in war are no longer just society as the discretionary association at home, but also local communities in the conflict zone. War as the management of violence on battlefields thousands of miles away from home is often portrayed as stabilization and reconstruction efforts conducted by, by military personnel supported by humanitarians and law enforcement personnel. Establishing a link between national security and military stabilization or humanitarian operations overseas remains a difficult task, both for shapers of public opinion and for policymakers. After the initial hopes of a new world order in the early 1990s, arguments that homeland security starts in Kabul, Raqqa, or Mogadishu have become increasingly hard for policymakers to sell. Similarly, debates about the indivisibility of human security are too philosophical to reach the ear of the man on the street. At first sight, the issue of public scrutiny appears to be a Western phenomenon. Yet, public opposition to overseas adventures, putting citizen soldiers at risk without tangible returns, becomes more visible in non-liberal and non-Western societies as well. President Vladimir Putin of Russia appears to be confronted with public opposition to Russian operations overseas, particularly in Syria. Iranian protesters against government policies in 2017 and 2018 voiced criticism over government spending on wars across the region for ideological hegemony, while unemployment and poverty were on the rise at home. Hence, reducing casualty aversion to liberal democracies appears to be too narrow.
Despite this public pressure from constituents, states are desperate to do something within a heterogeneous threat environment that ranges from global terrorism and insurgency to state failure and financial crises to global warming and mass migrations. The containment of these threats remains the prerogative of the state, regardless of whether the state is supplemented by commercial actors and non-governmental organizations or operates as a part of multinational coalitions. The preferred means to tackle these threats might be more often than not economic or diplomatic. But the military still has a role to play, particularly when economic or diplomatic activities take place in a coercive or insecure environment. As conflicts emanate from localities far away, often simultaneously and within different domains, states feel the need to develop an ability to respond instantly across the globe, even when that required response might be of low intensity. Derek Gregory calls these wars permanent everywhere wars, characterized by geographically contrapuntal and protracted threats. Not just states with superpower ambitions find it difficult to act in such an environment. Threats need to be engaged before they evolve, sometimes even before they really exist. Hence, threats have given way to risks as the drivers of security policy. Whereas the definition of threats requires a tangible other with plausible capabilities and communicated intentions, the definition of risks is more subjective as they refer to the probability of something bad happening in the future. Because of the increasingly risk-averse nature of societies, states rely on the precautionary principle and thus have to address any emerging risks, enlarging therefore the scope of their security policies. The resulting securitization effort behind constructing these threats is something Ulrich Beck defines as an integral effort of postmodern risk societies. Direct major wars between states have become a postmodern taboo, morally, financially, and legally. It might be, therefore, that some peripheral states, such as North Korea, are threatening war so as to increase their bargaining power in what they consider to be a hostile world order. As the natural antagonist, traditionally another state power, appears to dissolve in a global contest of influence rather than power, threats in the modern sense of the word arguably cease to exist spatially and temporally, and are being replaced by constantly redefined constructs of risk. It follows that insecurity, not security, has become the norm in the postmodern society. Beck argues that postmodern risk societies deal with this intangibility and unpredictability of threat by socially constructing threats on the basis of risks. War as life in the postmodern society has become an exercise of risk construction, prevention, and management. Since we are unaware of the known unknowns, let alone the unknown unknowns, postmodern policymakers tended to extrapolate risks from past experiences. Within an environment of delocalized global risks, preventative diplomacy and war have become necessary evils of mitigating the political costs of omitting risks, namely, it has become more socially acceptable to overreact to a potential risk than to underreact. As Beck states, quote, World risk society is faced by the awkward problem of having to make decisions about life and death, war and peace, on the basis of more or less unadmitted not knowing, end quote. The consequences of trying to mitigate the unknown within a global sphere of uncertainty have confronted the state as the enforcement authority with an ironic reality in which the lines between rationality and hysteria have become blurred. 
On one hand, letting Salafi jihadists prosper in ungoverned spaces might constitute a threat to Western security. On the other hand, justifying a U.S. drone strike on a Pakistani Taliban in Afghanistan with protecting American lives at home can also be seen as a stretch of the imagination, especially when considering the negative externalities of drone warfare. Similarly, the shooters in San Bernardino in 2015 and in Orlando in 2016 could not have been stopped by military operations of any kind overseas. The fact that these tragic incidences occurred, however, was exploited by then-Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump to attack the Barack Obama administration, ca causally linking the shootings to the Obama administration's indecisive stance against ISIS in the Middle East. Thus, not to act could be a greater political risk, particularly for liberal democratic governments, than acting with too little too late. Mediatized War the consequence of subjective securitization within a transnational environment of, of uncertainty is the state's delicate dilemma of having to show determination in eliminating the unknown risk, doing so by employing an agent that in the eyes of society should exclusively serve the public good of the society at home. In an era where the glory, enthusiasm, and pathos of past wars has lost its appeal, justifying the soldier's exposure to risks overseas for the peripheral interests of global goods has become a difficult task. Post-heroism and body bag syndrome are buzzwords that describe the attitude particularly of liberal societies toward the concept of war. Engaging intangible threats within areas of operations so far removed from the consciousness of the electorate at home in itself has become an effort of risk management. Liberal governments and the commander-in-chief need to reconcile concerns of public opinion at home, global public opinion, and sentiments of local communities in the operating environment, all of which are shaped by a constant presence of a new diversity of media attention. As Trinitarian servants of society, they have a primary responsibility toward their constituency, which, in particularly liberal societies, more often than not regards warfare as inhumane barbarism of uncivilized yesteryears. The citizen-soldier's sacrifice is no longer cherished as a glorious act of virtue, but as an avoidable horror that can only ever be justified if it serves the defeat of existential threats. While liberal societies display altruistic tendencies to alleviate the suffering of communities overseas, the willingness to accept soldier casualties in the pursuit of such humanitarian objectives is subject to a rigid cost-benefit analysis. In wars that appear to concern interests that are too peripheral or deal with threats that are widely intangible for society at home, the costs liberal societies are willing to pay tended to be close to zero. The cost in blood seems to be particularly hard to justify. For policymakers and military strategy leaders in liberal and non-liberal states, ca casualty figures since the Vietnam War have become a metric of success. Ever since, political and military leaders have felt pressured to minimize the risk exposure of military personnel in combat. While a commander is traditionally concerned with force protection, never in history have commanders been under so much scrutiny and stress to prioritize force protection over mission accomplishment. Thus, as Robert Mandel explains, casualty sensitivity is not so much a public sentiment in liberal societies as it is a quasi-doctrinally anchored strategic directive for operational commanders to fight a bloodless war.
In neo-Trinitarian wars, quote, aversion has become, at least in the minds of those making war and peace decisions, a phobia, i.e. an aversion so strong as to elevate the safety of the troops above the missions that they are assigned to accomplish, end quote. The solution to this dilemma of trying to mitigate risks overseas while minimizing financial costs and the cost of lives has been the risk transfer war, an inherent feature of 21st century warfare that in itself bears risks for liberal policymakers and military commanders. Martin Shaw defines risk transfer wars as military operations in which particularly liberal states externalize the operational risks of war to others on the ground. This is being done through the heavy reliance on air power and other technological platforms that allow targets to be eliminated from a far distance and with minimal or no operational risk exposure for Western soldiers. The consequence of this is a transfer of risks from the combatant community to non-combatants on the ground who are exposed to unreliable targeting and the collateral damage of area effect weapons. Effectively, the minimizing of soldier risk exposure in Western militaries bears, according to Shaw, the immoral reality of increasing the risk exposure of communities on the ground. For Western publics striving for bloodless wars, this is as much a concern as it is for global public opinion. Civilian casualties not only undermine the effectiveness of counterinsurgency operations, but also expose the state to negative publicity. Because of increasing global, pub, global public scrutiny and domestic opposition to war, even illiberal states are increasingly concerned with risk transfer wars. For instance, the Saudi-led military operation against the Houthis in Yemen is mainly conducted by air power, whereas the United Arab Emirates, UAE, is increasingly relying on human surrogates on the ground. At a time in which social media has revolutionized patterns of communication between and within communities across space and time, wars are broadcasted, subjective realities. Shaping the narrative of war has become a competitive effort between those militaries intervening, those communities affected by the intervention, and third-party outsiders trying to influence public opinion on the ground and worldwide. Unlike the Internet 1.0, which provided a one-dimensional and one-directional flow of information on the platform to the consumer, the Internet 2.0, facilitated by mobile devices, provides a virtual platform of interactive discourse whereby content is being consumed and produced at both the same time by both broadcasters and viewers. The exchange of information is instant, multidirectional, and interactive. The internet accessed through mobile devices has created a public cyberspace, a global public sphere characterized by Jurgen Habermas's principles of inclusive accessibility and interaction, which can hardly be controlled by or sanctioned by any one state. Information flows unrestrictedly across borders, and when disseminated through social media such as Facebook or Twitter, can be accessed anywhere, anytime, and by anyone. War is, is situated within this cyberspace, not just the operations themselves, but most importantly, the narratives of war that shape global public opinion. The war against ISIS since 2014 is a good example. It is as much a war over narratives in the global public sphere as it is a kinetic war over territory. Winning in this war is not so much about seizing and holding territory, but undermining the socio-political narrative of the Islamic State that itself had started as the counter-narrative to the Arab state. 
In wars over narratives, every civilian casualty can have a strategic impact if exploited by an opponent who, by tweeting an image, can polarize societies locally and globally, societies often being unable to verify or contextualize tactical military actions. Hence, the transfer of risks from the combatant to the non-combatant community ultimately undermines strategic narratives and commitments. Conclusions With war in the 21st century being an exercise of risk management under the scrutiny of a global audience against an elusive, geographically dispersed threat, militaries have adopted their doctrines, their ethos, and their raisons d'etre. Both Western and non-Western states had to find new ways and means of operating in this unpredictable global environment of insecurity characterized by ever-growing global and local security demands on states in an era of limited resources. Managing the anarchy that has emerged from the Cold War means having to disrupt the conventional Trinitarian links between society, state, and soldier so as to isolate the society from the costs of war, as well as to reduce the popular pressures on governments to deal with increasing perceived risks. In an effort to create the illusion of bloodless wars that are being fought on battlefields far removed from the borders of one's own homeland, states found the need to reduce their direct military engagements overseas in terms of visibility, costs, and accountability. States have not become less destructive or disruptive, but have had to find new ways and means to disassociate themselves from the management of coercive power. The management of violence or coercion had to be externalized to surrogates that would operate outside the conventional trinity, yet serve the state and national interests. As the next chapter will show, surrogate warfare might be the natural response to the difficulties of managing risks, threats, and conflicts in the 21st century in a global environment of uncertainty.